Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Rachel Mifsud. And uh, Rachel, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Uh, yeah, my name is Rachel, and I uh, own Will Forage for Food, which is a uh, an educational thing and a community, I guess we could call it. Um, I have a whole bunch of meetups and uh, Facebook group and TikTok and Instagram and everything where I post and people come together and kind of talk about foraging and foraging related stuff. So very, very nice. So I think I actually, my introduction to you would have been through my friend Clay Bowers, if I'm not mistaken, because he is a Michigander as well. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think, I think that might be why, but then I, I, and I wanted to go to one of your meetups, but then I realized how far away it was from me for, uh, for a quick day trip. It wasn't really on the cards being that you're kind of, uh, more on the eastern side of Michigan, I do believe. Yeah, South Central. Okay. A little bit east, but but really kind of in the middle of the south part. Okay. Sorry. East for me then. I guess it was, but <laughs> Yeah, definitely yeah. east for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so how how did it all um how did your foraging journey begin? Was it something that you, you know, picked up as a child or you had, you know, parents or grandparents that were mentors or or how did it all begin for you? And then how did it evolve yeah. into, you know, this long foraging journey that it became? Yeah, it it was something that we did when I was a kid. My parents were 
kind of late start hippies, I guess you could say. And so we had a huge garden and several acres and it was not unusual at all to put lawn weeds in our dinner and, and go out and pick stuff out of the back, you know, forest and, and, you know, things like that. And so I, I kind of started it as a kid. I didn't even realize it was weird <laughs> until I was in junior high. And uh, you know how you get in junior high, you get on the bus and you take the school trip and everybody stops at McDonald's on the bus. And I, so we all stopped at McDonald's and I went out into the landscaping at the McDonald's and picked some green onions to put on my burger. And that's when I found out that this was weird, um, which is a really difficult rep- reputation to live down when you're in junior high, that you're eating the weeds out of the landscaping. So um, so yeah, that, that's when I realized it was un, unusual and I kind of in high school, because of that experience, I kind of in high school and in my early twenties wandered away from it and wanted to distance myself from it because it was quote unquote weird. Um, but then I realized how much I missed it and how much I missed the variety of foods because it seems like the variety of food you can get in the supermarket is so limited compared to what's actually out there. Um, and I'm kind of a foodie. So I got back into it when I was in my late 20s, and I've been learning more and more ever since. So you could say my parents started me out on it, but they're like a level two. Mm-hmm. And then when I came back in my 20s, I accelerated up to level six or seven, maybe yeah. on I, my own. So I, I did a lot of lot of self-education as yeah. an adult. I find that so weird that people consider that weird. It's strange that you know, and, yeah. and it's sad because you were at the middle school age where you're kind of coming into your own, finding your own self-identity, um, trying to, all the weird and strange things happening to you, your body, all those other things around you, everybody else. And, and uh, let's face it, kids are just cruel at that age too. I mean, nature is even oh, more brutal. Oh, you have brutal. no idea. <laughs> nature is even more brutal. But um, I mean, the the fact that somebody is criticizing you for doing something like that. And, and I talk about this all the time with other guests and on podcasts that I've been guests on, but the disconnect that we have from something that wasn't that long ago. I mean, just a few hundred years ago, the majority of our food came from things we gathered and we've gotten so far that now it's standing in a line at a fast food place, ordering it, having no idea what the ingredients are or even how they got there. And you go out and you pick these wild onions and you put them on and people think that's weird. It's just such a sad thing to see that there is that disconnect. And I love it when I see people wanting to get back towards that. And trust me, people have often told me I'm weird for doing some of the things I do as well. But I have to say, they're the weird ones because they're the ones who have evolved and shied so far away from that. They just don't realize it yet. And one day, they might need those skills and not have them. So, (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and to be fair, I actually do have a favorite Wendy's that I go to specifically because they have wild mustard and wild onions growing in their landscaping. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's so, really yeah. cool. Um, <laughs> so when you um, wanted to get back into that, was it like college age or something like that? And you started taking, cause I hear it a lot from people that it was like botany classes or something that they took mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. rekindled that fire. And they're like, Oh wow. Yeah. I really need to get back out and start doing this. 
Yeah, it, actually, it was exactly that. I When I went to college, I went into environmental science, and I had to take several botany and, and you know, just outdoors classes, like a wetland delineation class and things like that. And so I started learning all these plants that I had known when I was a kid, but forgotten. And as I was relearning them, this little spark kept going off in my head. It's like, oh, I remember eating this, or oh, I remember picking this, or whatever. Um, and then as I was taking these classes, I started to realize that there were so many things that my parents had never even foraged that were still out there. And so being the weird person that I am, I started sticking stuff in my mouth and seeing what happened. <laughs> and uh, it just kind of grew from there. Um, so yeah, yeah, it definitely was a, a college thing. Um, but I was going to college to to study environmental science. I wasn't trying to study wild foods or anything like that. It was kind of, again, almost an accident that I came back to it. But it, when I did come back to it, it just felt so amazingly right that it was not hard at all to slip back into that, what I learned as a kid, and then to keep going with it. Nice. So did your parents, I mean, where did they get all this knowledge from? Was it handed down generationally or was it something that they just yeah. kind of picked up? No, it definitely was handed down, especially on my mother's side. Um, my my grandmother and grandfather may have been the first people with shoes in my family. So they, they definitely lived off the land. Um, and so they, you know, my mom grew up on a farm and they ate the lawn weeds and the farm weeds and, you know, everything. And so it was just, and so, yeah, so my mom, um, I learned a lot of stuff from my mom because she learned from her parents because that's just how they live. Um, and my, my grandmother was actually uh, pretty decent with folk medicine. And so I learned a lot of my medicinal skills through my grandmother, um, at least my rudimentary ones. Again, just like with the foraging skills, I've built on that over the years as an adult, but the, the start came from my parents and my grandparents, for sure. So, um, I mean, that was obviously generationally handed down. Um, did, mm -hmm. So when you were a kid then, was it actually natural remedies or modern medicine more so in your house? Because I find a lot of times some foragers don't even realize it. And as they were a child, I hear stories a lot to where it was, uh, natural remedies and different things that were foraged and tinctures and things that they actually took and they never even realized it until they got older that they didn't really have a whole lot of traditional medicine in the house it was a mix it was a mix like you know if, if you had a headache you took an aspirin but um <laughs> yeah. if you had a toothache if you had a toothache you give the kid a shot of brandy i like literally my grandparents got away with this is put, putting brandy on our gums when we were kids so, um, so it was a mix of folk medicine and, and regular, like traditional modern medicine, I guess you'd call it. Um, and the same thing with the food. It was completely a mix of forage stuff and garden stuff and stuff from the grocery store. It, was, it, it, it wasn't all one or the other. So, and I guess that's probably still true today in my life. Just like the Wendy's, going to the Wendy's and putting the onions and mustard greens on my hamburger. I'm very much a mix of modern and, and traditional. Um, I, there's a lot of advantages in modern grocery store foods and in modern medicine that you don't just want to throw that out just because you want to have the wild stuff as well. Nice. You know. So are you ever worried about uh, any type of herbicides or anything like that sprayed on the stuff at the Wendy's? 
Yeah, no, I face sprayed herbicide. Those things wouldn't be growing. Okay. So that's a good, that's a fair assessment then. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then, <laughs> so then when, um, when you got back into foraging and you realized how much you enjoyed it and missed it and you started developing, you said that you kind of just started putting things in your mouth. It was obviously stuff that you kind of knew or was it stuff that you're just oh, like, yeah. what the heck, we're going to try it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't do that. <laughs> um, no, it was definitely like, I've identified the plant. I know what it is. I've looked it up and okay, let's see what it tastes like. So um, yeah, no, you don't just, don't just stick random things in your mouth. That's a bad idea. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I, I did learn uh, in, you know, growing up, I didn't really learn plant ID skills. I just learned that this is this plant and that's that plant. I didn't really know how to figure out an ID if I had to, but of course in college, I did learn that. And so, yeah, I always am very, very careful about my IDs before I eat something because you just never know. It is in Michigan. I don't know about where you are or other places, but in Michigan, there's not a ton of things that can hurt you, at least not severely. So if you can learn those really toxic things and rule them out, then the worst you're going to do is make yourself sick. You're not going to kill yourself. Yeah, that's, so that's not so there's, bad, there's, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it's not fun, but, you know, but yeah. yeah. So learning the, the toxic stuff, I think, is just as important as learning the edible stuff because you need to know what to avoid. So let's kind of talk about that because you do something pretty cool um, on your Instagram reels that I always enjoy and it's the botany word of the day. Can we kind of talk about that and how important it is and botany plays a role within foraging? Because I'm starting to find that out as I try and advance myself and get into it. For a while there, it was like, well, I don't need to know that. I don't want to know the Latin names and all the kind of genus that it's in and stuff like that. But at a certain point, that becomes very important because if you can identify like distinguishable features of one, you can start noticing those in another and be able to start ruling things out. Yeah, I kind of, I liken it to learning about animals. When we're kids, we learn about, you know, birds have feathers and mammals have fur. And so if you see something, you don't know what it is, but you know, but you see it has feathers on it, you automatically know it's a bird, even though you've never seen it in your life before. But we don't in school teach those same skills when it comes to plants and especially when it comes to mushrooms. I've never seen anybody coming into my classes that had any sort of mushroom background when they were in K through 12 school. Um, So like we don't even, and then that's a whole kingdom of life. It's equivalent to plants or animals, but we learn nothing about it. And so you're looking at something and you don't know how to classify it by feathers and fur in a plant kingdom, you know, you're like, okay, it has opposite or alternate leaves, but we don't learn that as a kid, that that's the first thing you look at, you know? So I think botany skills and the mycology skills, if you want to get into mushrooms as well, are, are really important and you have to learn the vocab and people get intimidated and overwhelmed by it. But if you kind of view it, that you learned this same thing about animals when you were a kid, so if you could learn it about animals when you were four years old, you can learn it about plants as an adult. Yeah. You know, it's, it's no more difficult. Just the, the, the words for plants and mushrooms, especially plants, mushrooms aren't so bad, but especially plants tend to be these big Latin crazy words. But 
you know, so yeah, I started the botany word of the day on TikTok and Instagram. Sometimes I posted on Facebook too, um, where I, I got this new book um, for Christmas and it's got these really good illustrations and, and it's basically just a book, botanical terms. And so I just started reading entries out of the book onto my Instagram to help educate other people. So yeah, yeah. no, that's really know. cool. It's just something to do. No, I like it. And and I find it very interesting because a lot of times people will just say, hey, this is this plant, you can eat it, blah, 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 or whatever it is. You're going a step further and you're kind of giving them distinguishing characteristics or features of a plant that will help them. Like the other day mm-hmm. you did one about different types of leaves on trees um, and, and mm-hmm. it's just stuff like that, that you don't think about, but then when you start categorizing stuff in your head and going okay elm trees walnut trees you know oak and all these different things it starts coming together as you just start putting pieces together and i think it's cool that somebody's doing something that you're not really seeing so i I really like that what is that book so like everybody else can get it and learn from it and then you know what else i find fascinating is even though i've read multiple books on certain things and I often keep them on my nightstand and I flip through them just for like memorization purposes. And I'll be walking through the woods knowing that I know that plant or whatever it is, mushroom, and going, oh, I know what that is. I've seen it before. I don't remember if you can eat it. Those types of questions and things. And it's like, you really do know it and you know what it is. It's just you're doubtful of yourself almost. And you have to try and like, overcome that I think that's hard sometimes I think that that overcoming that comes with experience you know I I I teach a seven month long foraging class and when I start that class with people I tell them don't expect that you're going to be a great forager in a month or two or don't even expect that you're going to be a great forager in seven months when you finish the class it's going to take you another two or three years after you finish the class to really get comfortable with those skills the the class teaches you the skills but you have to practice them and you know for a lot of plants they're in season for maybe three weeks out of the year so you see them you learn them you maybe harvest them and eat them once by the end of that three weeks and then you don't see them again for a year so it takes three or four years to really become friends with that plant you know because you have to keep going back to it the book by the way is a botanist's vocabulary, 1,300 terms explained and illustrated by Susan Pell and Bobby Angel. Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely so, going to have to get that book and start flipping through that. It's a um, really before bed. It's a really good book. It's it's just straight botanical terms, but the, it's got really nice line drawings in it that are very clear. Okay. So, so I have to ask you something because I've started taking note of it and. Um, Somebody told me, because I said, well, I don't know how to identify it, and it's pokeweed, but I knew how to identify it once it's grown and it gets the berries on it and all that kind of stuff, or when it's like close to its mature stage to where it gets uh, you know, taller and starts turning purple. And one of the things somebody told me is, we'll start going around in the wintertime when the old pokeweed is there and start looking at it and recognizing those spots. So then you'll know how to Mm -hmm. identify it earlier on. And so now I'm at the point where I'm walking around and, um, you know, noticing all the different spots that the pokeweed grows and going, okay, well, I can come back here in the spring and now I'll know 
how it is and what to do. Is there a lot of other stuff that you can kind of do that with as well? Oh yeah, there's a, a ton of things that are easier to identify when they're out of season. Um, asparagus is another good one. Like this, asparagus is super, super hard to find when it's ready to be eaten because it usually is growing in a grassy field and the grass is taller than the asparagus. So how do you find the asparagus shoots, right? But in late summer and early fall, it has these big bushy plants that stick up above the grass and they're bright gold with bright red berries. And so you can see them going 75 miles an hour down the expressway. You're like, oh, there was an asparagus, <laughs> you know? So you, you wanna find those in the fall so that you can go back to them in the spring. Um, maple trees, there's another good one. It's, it, it's really not, I mean, if you know trees really well, you can identify a maple tree without its leaves on it. But for most people, trees without leaves are just trees, you know, and, but you have to tap the maple trees when there's no leaves on them. So how do you know which trees to tap if you didn't scout out your maples ahead of time? So that's just a couple of examples that come to the top of my head, but I'm sure there's many others. Um, one of the things I do teach in that seven month long class that I do is that is when things are out of season, I tell people to go look for them so that they can put it on a map for when it comes into season. Um, that's definitely a, a rudimentary foraging skill. Um, you have to, I guess, you know, animals in the wild have territories and any forager that I've talked to, serious forager also has a territory that they know their territory and they do well in their territory. And I always laugh at these survival shows where they throw somebody in the middle of Alaska where they've never been before and they tell them, you know, figure it out. It's like, I could probably make do if the world ended tomorrow and I had to forage off of my territory right here. But if you move me just 20 miles away, I'd probably starve because I don't know where things are, you know? And it's the same plants. You just, you have to know, you, it takes a couple of years to learn your area so that you know where to go and when. Um, so it's it, foraging, learning to forage is not a quick and easy thing. It's definitely super rewarding and it's rewarding along the way as you learn. So it's not like you're just bored for two years and then all of a sudden, bam, you're a forager, you know? Um, it's, it's, but it's, it's a journey. If you're serious about wanting to forage, it's gonna take two to three years to learn the plants, learn your territory and get everything down. And if you move, plan for it to take a year before you're back on your feet. Yeah, I find that <clears throat> that's pretty interesting that you bring that up because it's something I never thought about, um, it, especially if you take somebody that's from the Midwest and you put them in Alaska or somebody in the Pacific Northwest, it's going to be completely different than, you know, the Southwest. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's something I never really thought of, but that truly does bring up a good point that yeah you probably would starve because you'd have to go through an entire season before you actually discovered where all the different plants are um <laughs> so, exactly yeah that's uh exactly. that's definitely a good point um yeah and also there's a lot of things that at least in the midwest here there's a lot of things that you forage in the fall um when it's harvest season and then you preserve them or store them and you eat them all year long, like acorns and rice and things like that. You have to forage those things. You have a, a limited window in the fall to forage those things, but they're staples that you eat all year long. If you're eating off of a real forage, the diet that's, that's primarily foraged foods. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, like we talked about earlier, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, this was part of people's lives. And 100, 200, 300 years ago, people went out in the fall and they did all of their gathering. That's why we have gathering festivals in the fall, you know, like, you know, Thanksgiving and things like that. Those all fall in the fall because that's when you gather most foods and then you store them over the winter and that keeps you going over the winter. Um, and even into the spring, like right now, it's probably uh, the hardest time of the year because everything that you stored for over the winter, your stores are getting low, right? But the spring stuff hasn't actually started yet. So March is probably the hardest month for foraging. Yeah, what actually, I mean, especially in like the Midwest region, what is there that's going on right now that you can actually forage? I've always kind of wondered, and I mean, I know there's some things and some types of like winter mushrooms and things like that, but um, what, I mean, what is there? There are a few winter mushrooms that come out. If if we get above freezing, they'll pop up, you know, here and there. Um, there's a few greens, like some of the mustard greens are, are very uh, winter hardy, especially especially a couple of the invasive ones that come from more Northern climates in Europe and Asia. Um, they, they'll be out even green under the snow. Chickweed. Chickweed is one of my absolute favorite plants because it's backwards. It comes out in November, starts growing, grows under the snow. Every time the snow melts back a little bit in the wintertime, it grows. And then it flowers now and grows a little bit more until like mid-April or so. And then it dies and you don't see it again until next fall. It's a backwards, completely backwards plant, um, but it's an amazing winter green um, that you can use. You know, I use it. I love it on sandwiches. It's it's like sprouts. Um, it's like crunchy and green and crisp and um, and I put it in scrambled eggs too. It's really good in scrambled eggs. Nice. So that's another good one. <laughs> what else? Nuts. You can find nuts over the winter sometimes, um, especially if you find like a low lying area where they've kind of washed down downhill. So there'll, there'll be collections of nuts at the bases of hills. Um, I just have the maple trees, maple sap is running. So that's, that, to me, maple sap is the beginning of the year. Um, that, that's when things start to wake up. So that's when my, my year begins is, is when maple sap starts. Cause that's when I start foraging and that's when I start putting things away for next winter. Like, Literally, I'm capping maple trees and I'm making maple sugar that I'm going to have all the way until next March. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's one thing that I've always wanted to do. Don't have a lot of maple trees around here. I've thought about yeah. actually tapping walnut trees. I know you won't get as much sap, but it is possible. I love walnut, is actually my favorite. Walnut, walnut syrup tastes like. Uh, it's got like a vanilla cream flavor to it that's really it's just very rich and and I just absolutely love it you don't need yeah you don't get as much but you don't need a lot it's it's very rich maybe maybe I'm gonna have to do that but you can't make sugar out of it you can can make syrup which of course you can keep stored in the fridge or whatever but you can't make sugar out of walnut because they have pectin in their sap and so it turns into taffy instead of sugar it just gets like really stretchy and Actually Which is sounds not all delicious, bad. actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> I made it on accident once and it was pretty awesome. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So So if what what is the optimal time then? Because isn't it like when the temps start being in the twenties or something like that that you start uh tapping the trees? 
The maple trees run when the nighttime temperatures are below freezing and the daytime temperatures are above freezing. Oh, so, so you like get about right maybe now. 10 days. Yeah, like 10 days to two weeks in the spring when those temperatures are going up and down. Something about the freezing and thawing overnight helps them pump their sap. I'm not exactly sure how the mechanism works. I just know that that's part of it. Wow. So I need to go out and tap my trees today after we're done talking for sure. Then. Yep. <laughs> Now's yep, the time. Yep. That's cool. So Now I'm definitely going to have to do that. And I think I am going to make some taffy because that sounds awesome, actually. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I just posted a video yesterday on tapping the maples if you want to check out the Instagram for instruction. Sure. That sounds great. Um, so Something that was brought up and I was actually talking with somebody about this morning was pine pollen. And um, yeah, it other than it being it, I believe it's like an androgen as well. So like a testosterone booster. But um, I was talking about Allen Burgo making some type of candy with like maple sugar and pine pollen or something on it. What what is the flavor of like the pine pollen? I, I can't picture it in my head. Is it almost like citrusy or piney or? No. Oh my God. <laughs> Every once in a while it's fun to go with like just full blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Mm, maybe like a little bit like, it's more of a texture than a flavor. It's, it might be like, like finely ground cornmeal. Okay might be the best it, i don't know that it I, I don't really think of it as having a flavor you know how like flour doesn't really have a flavor you know like if you just ate flour out of the bag it doesn't really have a flavor and so that's kind of how pine pollen is it doesn't on its own if you just ate a spoonful of it it's just kind of neutral okay. but it does have a very distinct texture it does, it does have a texture to it Okay, would you kind of compare it to like... Same with cattail pollen. Cat, that's a, just what I was going to say is like, yes. would you compare it to cattail I, I pollen? I would compare pine pollen to cattail pollen, which is helpful to no one. <laughs> so. Well, I, maybe not. I mean, maybe somebody has already tried using cattail pollen and tried to make a pancake or something with it. Who knows? I don't know. But mm -hmm. <laughs> that's so. one thing that I have actually <clears throat> collected and once again, didn't really know what to do with it. So with those pollens what would you do with them uh, and, and use them and prepare them? Um, with pollen, you can put it into any baked good. Um, so breads, cakes, muffins, anything like that. And um, it, kind of, it kind of disappears into those things. So if you're looking to experience the flavor of it and the texture of it, probably don't want to do that. But if you're just looking to use the... But pollen, like to me, pine pollen is a protein source. You know, it's it's very rich in protein. Um, so I throw it into my baked goods to add protein in into things that I'm eating. Um, 
but if you so if you're looking to experience the the actual flavor and texture of it, something more like Alan's pine and maple things that he made, um, you know, you need you need the pine to pollen to be one of the major ingredients. Whereas like when I make muffins, I might throw a half a cup of pine pollen into the whole recipe. So it kind of just disappears into there. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, some people put it in hot cereal. I've never done that. I'm not a big fan of hot cereal, but some people do put it into hot cereal. Like they just mix it into their oatmeal or whatever. Um, so I, I don't know how that tastes because like <laughs> I said, I'm not a hot cereal fan, but I'm just recording here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that, that sounds yeah. good to me. I mean, that sounds, uh, you know, if you like eating oatmeal, put that in there and actually put some maple sugar on top, right? <laughs> or maple syrup or... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or in this case, absolutely. walnut, maybe. If I was into oatmeal, yeah. If I was into oatmeal, that'd probably be good. Yeah. What about uh, yeah. like acorn grits or anything like that? Do you ever make any sort of thing like that? Yeah. Same thing. I use acorns uh, very similarly, like grinding them up and putting them into baked goods and things like that. Um, the acorn, you do taste the flavor. It's kind of a nutty flavor. Um, and you can leave, you know, like pine pollen is very fine grained to begin with. It's not like you can make it, but acorns, you can leave them in kind of little chunks so that you get little chunks of acorn as you're eating whatever. Um, acorn blueberry pancakes are one of my favorites, which are made with regular flour and eggs and milk and everything you normally make a pancake with. And then you just add the acorns in the same way as you would add in walnuts or pecans or something if you were making pancakes with nuts in them. Nice. So. Yeah. No, that sounds delicious, actually. It's making me hungry. But <laughs> Yeah. So obviously yeah. foraged so. blueberries taken and probably thrown in the freezer or something like that, though. That's my guess, yes. right? Okay. So yes, of- there is amazing blueberry bog down the road for me that I absolutely love. So I spend a lot of time there in July. So when you find blueberries like in the Midwest, I don't think, I don't even think we have any down by us or if we do, I have not discovered them yet anyway. I mean, do you know of any like in Illinois or anything like that near me other than, you know, farms, obviously there's a farm right down the road from me, but yeah. I don't really know that much about what's in Illinois, but I think blueberries like acidic soil, and I don't know that you have a lot of that in Illinois. Um, it, it, they like bogs and, and mushy places and sandy places and I, places where they like places where corn doesn't grow, so they're probably not by you. <laughs> Yeah, I I would say that's a safe assumption then for sure. They're, yeah, they're they're not happy in places where corn and soybeans grow. <laughs> that so. makes sense. That's a good uh, good way to look at it. So now I but, need to find some more marshes and and bogs and wetland areas to search. Um, what you might do from Illinois is take a a weekend trip, you know, like an overnight trip and go up to the northern half of Michigan's Lower Peninsula um, because they are practically a ground cover from the midsection of of the hand all the way to the bridge. Um, They're they're everywhere. So um, it it, it always makes me laugh because there are several you-pick blueberry farms up in that part of the state (laughs) where they charge people to come in and pick. And literally right next door is a thousand acres of wild blueberries. 
<laughs> that's know? crazy but yeah. at the same time i mean if you don't know you don't know right and that's that whole disconnect yeah. once again and people are willing to do that and pay that because they have no idea and they don't want to poison themselves so <laughs> right right yeah. It's kind so. of sad, though. That is sad that such a thing exists. It is sad, <laughs> but good, good for the farmer that, or you know, the farm that's making the money because, you know, take right? advantage of the lack of knowledge there for sure. <laughs> and to be fair, I have more respect for the person who's picking their own than the person who's just getting them from flown in from Brazil at the grocery store and irradiated, and you know all the other good things and who like, knows yeah yeah, yeah. Right. and what's been sprayed yeah. on it and, so. yeah so no that is uh that's definitely a good thing and i like that idea and i probably have to go make a trip up to northern michigan anyway and uh it sounds have, like go ahead yeah i have a i like i was talking about having territory you know you have to know your territory i actually have what I call my annex. It's my territory annex that is in the northern part of Michigan that I go up to about once a month for a weekend um, to harvest things up there because in the northern part of the state, you can find things that are rare in the southern part of the state and vice versa. So I literally spend, like, like I said, about a weekend a month going up to a spot that I always go to. And it's, it's about a 10 mile stretch of two track through the state land. Um, and I forage down the two track and for about 200 yards into the woods on either side of the two track. And I literally just go and drive about five miles an hour down this two track, watching the sides of the road and picking stuff. That's so. awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So my experience with that is like, so I try to hunt for like my home hunting territory. I will always mm -hmm. pick places that are within like a two hour drive. And so with doing that every year, I try and expand my territory and I'll go to at least one new uh, public area to hunt. And in doing so, I spend time in the spring, like real, real early spring slash late winter. And then again, in uh, like mid spring and then early fall as well, preparing for that. So I end up learning all these different territories. And what's funny is a scouting trip that would normally take an hour if you were only looking for deer sign, because I start noticing all these different plants and trees and, and uh, nut crops and things like that, it ends up to where I spend six, seven hours in an area scouting it. And my wife's like, what, where have you been? What have you been? Well, I got sidetracked. I found, you know, chestnuts and, and all these different things that I found. And, yep. and, uh, so it's kind of cool that you say that, that you have, you know, your annex. So I guess I have my own annex as well. And spending so much time and then spending time during hunting season, especially sitting in a tree for, you know, six hours at a time or eight hours at a time waiting for mm -hmm. that one deer or deer to come by, you end up looking around a lot. And so when I look around, yeah, I end up just kind of scanning the horizon and I'll look at the different plant life and things like that. And then I start looking at all the trees and then I start noticing things on the trees and I'm like, wait a minute, what is that? What's growing out of that tree? And I'll get my binoculars out at that point. And that's when I start looking for, you know, chicken of the woods and all kinds of things. And I'll be sitting there in the tree and going, well, I know where I'm headed. If I get down and, and I don't have a deer come by me, the first thing I'm going to do is run over to that tree. And so I do all these things while I'm, <laughs> it's, it's so bad yeah. though because I lose focus of what I'm actually there for because I discover something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
but it's yep. really cool to do that. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if you end up getting I've... sidetracked by different things as well, but. Yeah, I actually very rarely go out with a specific goal in mind. I usually just grab my foraging basket and wander and pick what I find. Um, there are certain times like, you know, oh, it's acorn season, I'm going for acorns or I'm going wild rising. You know, you go for specific things. Um, blueberries, I'll go specifically for blueberries, but probably at least 75% of the time, I just go wander and find what I find. Um, so yeah, you never know like what you're going to come back with. So yeah, no, that's cool. I think the only time that I'm half the fun. Yes, for sure. Half the fun. But I find that during morel season, especially on public ground, because the competition is fierce for morels. And, uh, that's about the only time that I'm laser focused and I'll pass by just about everything and keep going on to the next big, uh, cluster of morels. So Yep, yep, yep. The state land around here, the public land around here is actually probably about three times as crowded during morel season as it is during hunting season. There are, there are so many morel hunters around here. And it's amazing to me too, because I can walk through the woods after them and find hundreds of morels that they've walked right across. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, like they're so hidden. They're so hidden. And I'm sure somebody coming behind me can probably find even more. They're, they they just blend in so much. But um, I don't specifically go for morels unless I'm leading a mushroom guide trip. Um, but even, even in morel season, because you can get skunked so easy. And then you spent the whole day in the woods passing up so much food because you were busy looking for these morels. That is so, true. That is um, true. I have a little, I have a, a little dog that I trained to smell morels. And so I take her out in the woods with me and she lets me know when it's time to look for the morels. And otherwise I look for other stuff. That is awesome that you did that. So (laughs) (laughs) I imagine it's the same as teaching a descent track for anything else really. But that, that is the first time I have ever heard anybody, I've heard of, uh, training pigs and dogs to find um, what truffles. Truffles, yes, thank you. But I have never heard of anybody training a dog to go and sniff out morel mushrooms. So that is probably yep. <laughs> one of the coolest things I've ever heard. So I mean, how long did it take for you to do that? <laughs> it didn't take that long because my ex-husband already had her trained. He he had a couple of turtles that he kept in a little outdoor pen and sometimes they would bury themselves in the ground in that little outdoor pen and, and he wouldn't be able to find them. So he originally trained the dog to find the turtles. And so I just refocused that behavior. So he had her completely trained with the behavior already. It only took me one season to retrain her to, to go after morels. That um, is amazing. But it took him a couple of years. It took him a couple of years to train her for the turtle. Basically, you take like um, like the top of a Tupperware container and you put the mushroom underneath the top of the Tupperware container so that it can't be seen. And then when she it, you know, indicates on the Tupperware container, you reward her. And then you just start hiding the mushroom in more and more difficult spots and sending her after it. And eventually it just becomes a game where they're 
they, they're looking for the mushrooms the same way as if you hid their toy. They're just looking for the mushroom instead. <laughs> that is so cool. I, it's really, I can't get over that, it's though. really not that difficult. I the, get the most it. <laughs> difficult part about it is that you have to sacrifice a couple of morels in order to do the training because the dog will destroy the morel, you know, like, <laughs> like as it's learning. Um, and also the, the morel being out of the refrigerator for half the day while you're training, you know, you probably don't want to eat that one afterwards. So you have to, you have to first find a couple of morels to train with, and then you have to sacrifice them. That is the hardest part. I think that's totally worth the reward in the end though, to have, you know, have your dog, uh, find, find all those morels for you for sure. That's, uh, I mean, what's the success rate on that? I mean, as long as they're out there, that dog's probably going to find it. Right. She's, she's pretty good. Like when we're just wandering through the woods, um, she, if she finds one, she'll indicate. And then, um, she's, she doesn't, I don't think she specifically looks for them. She's just out wandering with me. Just like I'm wandering. I'm like, oh, there's a nettle. Oh, there's whatever, you know? And she's like, oh, there's a morale. And she knows that she's supposed to sit down and wait when she finds a morale. And if I don't notice her, she knows she's supposed to bark, right? Um, so when she finds one, she'll signal for me. And then if I send her on, a, and then I'll send her out searching. I'll, I'll ask her to search after that. And she'll start making like a, a, a radius. And if she finds another morale within about five minutes, she gets excited and keeps going. But if she doesn't find another one within a few minutes, she gets bored and stops looking. So she's really good for finding the initial patch. And then if it's a dense patch, she's really good at finding the ones I'm missing. So, but she does get bored quick. She does get, you know, I have to give her her own space. Like she wants to be out in the woods playing too. So... And any help she gives me is better than no help. I still can't get over that. I want to get a dog now just to go find mushrooms. But that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> now I just have to convince my wife to do that. But no, that is, that is – Yeah. I've never heard that ever. And I got to tell you, that is so awesome. That's probably one of the coolest things I've heard. So I love that. That is amazing huh. that you've done that. <laughs> Yes, yes. My friends call her Bubba the Wonder Dog. That is cool. So, um, other than that, like, um, what other kind of? <laughs> I I don't even know how to top that. Like, where where do you go from there? That's, right, that's right. Like, Inter- interviews done. That's it. We can't go any further. Yeah, <laughs> that's the coolest thing ever. So, do you take her with you to like your your annex territories and stuff like that too? Then. Oh yeah, she goes with me everywhere. Yeah, she's attached to me. Like, yeah. So have, no. have you? I mean, obviously, she doesn't go in, into the grocery store with me or anything like that. But she goes with me everywhere. Like any place she can go, she goes. No, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you do, though, uh, that I think we should talk about for sure, is um, your different meetups and gatherings that you do, um, as far as your mm-hmm. foraging classes, and then um, mm-hmm. some of the some of the other stuff as far as the meetups. So can you kind of go into those and, and how those one came about and two, uh, when are they going to be? Well, I mean, Will Forage for Food started out as a meetup group. Um, I, I joined a meetup group for foragers. And shortly after I joined, the moderator or whatever they call it of that meetup group decided to step down. And so I took over the meetup. And um, I ran it for about a year 
just running regular meetups, you know, posting things for people to come. And what happened was every time I posted a, an outing, I would be the only one who knew what was going on and everybody else was there to learn, which is no big deal. I'm a natural teacher. I, that's my day job. I'm a teacher. Um, and so I was like, okay, so I'm teaching people on the weekends now too. And then I thought about it and I'm like, well, wait a minute, I get paid to do this during the week. Right. So why am I paying for a meetup to do this teaching on the weekend? What am I doing? And so I went to shut the meetup down and everybody was like, no, don't do that. We'll pay you. And I was like, get the frick out of here. You'll pay me for this. You know, and so I started putting a, a little price on, on the meetups and people started paying. And so Will Forage for Food, the business actually came about as an accident. Like I had no intention of starting a business and it's just gotten bigger and bigger from there. I now have nine meetups all throughout the southern part of Michigan and as well as Fort Wayne and Toledo. Um, and so we do meetups, um, you know, probably five or six meetups over the summer in each of those nine groups um, where we go out and just do foraging classes. I also do um, some Zoom classes and things over the winter when you can't really get out and do much foraging. So that all goes through the meetups as well. Um, and then I have a, a class that I put together the year before COVID. I didn't actually put it together because of COVID. I put it together in, in 2019. And um, that is online and the seven month online class where I give you all of the tools you need to go out in your own territory. Because if you come on my plant walk, you're looking at the plants where I'm showing them to you. And then you go home and you're like, well, where is this plant? Right. And so in my online foraging class, it's literally designed so that you learn the plants in your own backyard. Um, so there's that, that seven month class. And at this point, about 250 people have gone through the class and no one has actually ever, I haven't had any complaints that, oh, this didn't work. So I'm assuming that it's working. I hear a lot, you know, it starts in April and it goes through November. And I hear a lot of people at the end of this class telling me that they have foraged foods, multiple foraged foods on their Thanksgiving dinner table. So if they're starting from scratch at the beginning, obviously they're, they're getting something out of it. So that's, that's pretty cool, um, that, that foraging class. And you can find that through my website, willforageforfood.com. Um, and then I also do, on top of the plant walks and the foraging class, the big foraging class, I do um, like some smaller classes and some weekend camps. Um, that have a specific focus, like maybe we'll focus on mushrooms for the weekend, or uh, maybe I'll partner up. I'm doing one later this summer where I'm going to partner up with a guy who's really good at bushcraft skills. And so we're going to combine the bushcraft and the foraging into a weekend long camp where people can come and learn some foraging and some like fire starting and rope making and some other, like some of these bushcraft skills that he's going to teach. And I'm going to teach the foraging. Um, and we'll have that, that weekend. And then we have once a year in June, I have the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering, which is a huge event. It's the biggest gathering of foragers east of the Mississippi um, that, that's held annually. And with the participants and the instructors, we have somewhere between 200 and 250 people that come out and we spend the weekend camping in the woods and every meal has foraged foods. And we have, uh, I think this year we have 45 instructors 
that teach classes throughout the weekend. Um, so it's just like a big, just a big gathering of foragers and, and we have cooking contests and all kinds of, of fun stuff. So keynote speaker Alexis Nicole is actually going to keynote for us this year, which is a big deal for us because she's a huge name. So Yep. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And I, I love that, you know, you can get together and not only because so many people think it's weird, right? You can gather with like-minded people that are inspired by the same things and be able to have that yes. sense of community and build relationships in person instead of just online. And especially with the past couple years and how they have been, I don't know. I think, uh, did you actually have one last year or no? No, no, if it wasn't for COVID, this would be our 10th year, but instead we're in our eighth year. Yeah, no, that's that's so. amazing, though, and it's, I'm glad to see it's, it's happening, and I am definitely going to try to do my best to actually get up there and, and uh, join you guys for the festivities and, and uh, make that happen. Can you tell everybody when the date is for that so uh, they can... It is June... Oh, let me look. Hang on. 20-something, I June... believe. 20th to 23rd or something like that hang on um and if you're interested in coming you definitely want to register soon because we are about 85 percent full right now Ooh, good so, to know for sure yeah so so don't don't wait to register it's june 22nd to the 26th okay. 23rd to the 26th um the 22nd the wednesday is we allow people to come a day early and just camp out but we don't actually start the event until the, the uh, 23rd no, that's awesome. No. So, um, Rachel, it's been great talking to you. I love what you're doing with the botany word of the day and all that kind of stuff on social media. And I think it's really cool what's to come. And hopefully uh, I can, you know, meet up with you guys and do all that stuff. So before we go, though, Rachel, can you kind of uh, just tell everybody, I know you mentioned it, but where they can find you, your content on uh, the Internet, social media and all those good things as well? Yeah, so uh, my website is willforageforfood.com. And the meetups, all the meetups are named Will Forage for Food. I have a Will Forage for Food on Instagram, at Will Forage for Food on TikTok. Um, and then there is a Will Forage for Food Facebook group as well um, that you can join. Thank so, you so much. Thank you for just, coming just on. Google yeah. Will Forage for Food and something will pop up. Okay. That's awesome. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate uh, you taking your time and, and sharing with us and educating people, not only through this podcast, but also on uh, all forms of social media as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, 
Download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.